Hebrews chapter 5, we started this last week. Um, it was supposed to be uh, an intro for the next few weeks, and I got way more out of these uh, leading verses, so we made a whole week out of it. But I'm just going to read, starting in chapter 5, by way of review where we were. If you were not with us or have not heard that message online, it is online. Hebrews 5, 11. Concerning him, this is Jesus the Son of God who came, according to the order of Melchizedek, you can read back in verse 10. Concerning him, the Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I'm going to stop there for now. Last week, we looked at what it means to be dull of hearing. There were things that the, this writer wanted to teach the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, but could not because they were still on baby food. They had not grown up to receive the depth of what he was trying to teach them or wanted them to be taught about Jesus, the high priest king, who came according to Melchizedek. And so I encourage you to go back if you've not heard that because it really builds on this. We need to challenge ourselves to making sure that we are growing. What do you look like now? Are you more in love with Jesus? Are you more mature now than you were last year, five years ago, ten years? What does your relationship look like? You've been saved 15, 20, 30, 35 years. That's a challenge. Do you know more now than you did then? Are you more in love now? Do you do more good works now than you do, did then? Do you tell more about Jesus to the lost and dying now than you did then? You need to mature. That's the hope that we're looking for. The theme of this year is spiritual growth, maturity. We're taking, taking this passage. And verse 14 is a key. It said, because of practice having their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is in context of teaching to receive the truth. We have to practice that. Some people think counterintuitively that, oh, if I just study the Word of God, I'm going to intuitively know all right from wrong. Well, yes, the Word of God is going to help you dis dissect and, and, and discern what is right and wrong, but you have to practice it. You have to, this is something you have to train these spiritual muscles, checking things against the Scripture, not just taking every word that a pastor or any teacher says behind the pulpit as truth. Go test it, test the spirits, test the words, make sure they are true, practice your senses, so that when someone says something, you say right away, oh, I've got to check in my spirit, that's not right. You've got to practice those things. That's you might be mature enough to feed on solid food. Mady says a thing, I don't know where you got this from, maybe you know, but when it's like a buffet, you, you can go and some people try to, you know, 
pick the parts that they like, but the whole Word of God is useful for teaching. Here's the picture. She says sometimes there's preachers, you know, that not everything they say is right. And you say what? Spit out the bones? Eat the meat? Eat the, meat, eat the fish and spit out the bones. You know, we have to be trained to do that. And I wonder, here's where I'm going with it, is that where could we be in our level of maturity in teaching if we were all able to recognize a bone for what it is? Maybe we could go into some deeper things. But we've sort of preserved that and say, oh, well, you can't give fish to babies. They're not going to know what to do with that. They can't chew it up. You can blend it up, right? But you have to be real careful to take all the bones out. And that's what we do. We, we put the, the Word of God into a nice little package, and we say, here you go. This is easy to digest. Now, I'm not saying that I want us to be intentionally teaching falsely and teaching bones, but what I'm saying is if we get into the deeper things, we have to be prepared for inevitably some things that might not sound right. And we, as believers, need to be mature enough to be able to discern what is right from wrong. Hebrews chapter 6, so this is where we are. There are six things. He says, leave all that stuff, that infant stuff behind and press on to perfection. That word is, it's or press on to maturity or to be a full statured man, but the word is perfection. Press on to perfection. Can we be perfect? That, beloved, is an interesting question. Well, I don't want to speak for you, but I find it interesting. It's interesting to me. In fact, it's a fairly debated topic within Christian Christianity. Scholars, teachers, will refer to this as Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification. I think one way of looking at it, I believe there's a difference between perfectionism and the calling to be perfect. The striving of doing perfectly can bog you down. I don't know if you've ever met a perfectionist. Some people say that I am because I like to straighten the chairs. I don't really think that I'm a perfectionist. I think that I am particularist. <laughs> I'm a what? A straightener. I like that. I'm a, I'm a straightener in the church. All right, whatever you say, Kathy. <laughs> we are called to be perfect, but we, not, we need to not be bogged down by perfectionism of trying to earn or strive in a certain way. See, in Christian dogma, perfectionism is a term that is given to the belief that after salvation, sometimes after baptism, sometimes after the second blessing as it's referred to, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that not only is perfection the goal, but it is possible this side of eternity. That we can be absolutely sinless, achieve sainthood, if you will. And they believe that while on earth you can return to a point where you will not make or commit any sins or miss the mark in any way. For example, Methodist candidates, when they are being asked for ordination questions, they are asked this question, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? It's a peculiar teaching with far-reaching implications. Why? Here's the question that I was asked one time in this church by a former member. Why would Jesus ask us to be perfect if we could not be perfect? That's the challenge that was posed to me. 
Now, I won't speak for you all, but try as I might, I confess I miss the mark at times. Maybe it's just because I'm, you know, young, right? I haven't been following the Lord for like 70 years, 80 years, 90 years like some of y'all. <laughs> I went really high just so everyone felt included. <laughs> Didn't want to leave anyone out there. <laughs> I miss the mark. I still sin. Just ask my wife about it. She'll be happy to tell you. You see, I strive to be holy, 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, as he is holy. That's my goal. That should be all of our goal, to strive to be like God, to be perfect like him. But the truth is, I cannot attain it on my own. It's not something that I can work to. If I just try a little harder, see, it has to come from him. That's the first thing we must note, that it's God's work in us. For I am confident of this very thing, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you, who, who began it? He did. When did he begin it? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day in Christ Jesus. He's going to do the work. God's the one doing the work in us by the Holy Spirit. He's maturing us and growing us into perfection. Now, that does not mean that we don't have a responsibility in the matter, Philippians 2.12. But perfectionism, or entire sanctification as it's termed, is not possible until the perfect comes. In fact, there's even a term for that, or we use it, I use it, glorification. That's when we will become perfect and be made like Him and see Him just as He is. Here's another facet to the question, though. Those who are in Christ Jesus are, in some sense, perfect even now. Hang with me. We're not perfect, yet we are perfect because we're in Christ Jesus. This is because His perfection has already been imputed to us. You stand before God the Father right now, there is not one accusation that will stick and will land because your sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. The accuser likes to hurl those insults. Oh, you're no good for nothing. Oh, you're sinful. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You're not going to make it to heaven. You're no good for anything. And that's what Jesus, the mediator, does for us. He stands between the devil and us, the judgment seat, and he absorbs all of that in his own righteousness, and has imputed that righteousness to us and says, nope, he's saved. Nope, he's chosen. No, he's loved. No, he's forgiven. No, he's pure. No, he's holy. No, he's perfect. We have been imputed the righteousness of Christ Jesus because positionally we are in him. Positionally, we have been made perfect already. Now, the flip side of that is that we still are in a fallen world with fallen bodies. And the reality is, there's another piece to us that even though I'm not the one doing it, sin still dwells in me and does it. Positionally, we aren't sinning. There's a reality, though. So although we're positionally perfect in Christ, we continually work toward perfection of the Father by the help of the Holy Spirit. And one day, we're going to be entirely perfect just like Jesus when we're with Him in heaven. Press into perfection, believer. Just understand that you cannot attain it on your own. That work is reserved for that future day when all is restored. Philippians 3.12. Not that ha I have already attained it, 
or am already perfect. There's a striving. Work toward it. Perfection, maturity, press on toward that. Not laying again a foundation. There are six things that are about to be. These are the future teachings of the weeks ahead. There are six pieces of the foundation that are mentioned here. There are certainly other pieces of our foundation, other milk of the word, if you will. Your, your body is a temple, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And upon the teaching of Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, that's how you start with a building back in the day. You start with the cornerstone. You get it nice and level, get it nice and square, and you lay the foundation starting at the corner. And off of that, other foundation stones were laid. Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And these foundation stones are laid are these other teachings. Repentance, faith, good works, laying on of hands, repentance. These are laid on top of that, that, that foundation, Christ Jesus. He's saying, I don't want you to keep laying foundation. There's a point when your building needs to be raised up. You can ask Ted about that. What happens if you don't lay a foundation, though? Foundations are important. We're not disparaging these foundations. We're not disparaging these stones. They're, they're important. They're crucial. But on the other hand, you don't need two foundations either, do you? You got a foundation laid. Let's move on. Don't lay another foundation. So here's six things that the Jewish believers were supposed to be past already. And he says, you have need to go back to the milk. I think that's weird, and it's peculiar in verse 12. I shouldn't say weird, but it really stood out to me. It says, you have come to need of milk. It's like the implication is that they were past it at some point, but they've actually digressed in their understanding. Let us not go back to the elementary things. So let's use this list as a survey to see how we're doing in our walks and our maturity. Here's the bricks. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I want to go through them in order. Number one, repentance from dead works. Dead works now are spoken of in Hebrews two places, the other one being in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. These are not to be understood as the works which bring death, rather they are under to be understood in contrast to the works that produce life. There are works that produce life, and there are works that bring nothing. Nothing is brought about. You're doing it for your own pat on the back. You see, Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the... The foundation that we should understand is that works don't bring us life. Jesus is the bringer of life. He is life. Works are not going to get you saved. That was the mindset of the Jews in the day. Oh, they had fallen into this trap of just trying to earn salvation. Well, if I just do these things, if I practice these laws, if I keep these things, eventually I'm going to be good enough to go to heaven. Or when I die and, I, and I've, I've done all that he's asked me to do, I'm going to be accepted. That's the trap that the Jews had fallen into. He says, let's not fall back into that. I want to talk about works because many misunderstand the role that they play in the life of a Christ follower. 
before Christ Jesus came, the keepers of the Torah, that is what we would now refer to as the Hebrews or the Jews, they taught that works alone saved. Do these right things? That was what the, the keepers of the law said, the Pharisees. That's the, the issue, namely, that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these keepers of the law. They were telling, they were heaping commands on all of the believers and saying, oh, just do all these things. And there's 600 laws, and if you do all these things, you're going to be good enough, and one day I'm going to accept you. Jesus had an issue with that. He said, it's not the laws, it's the intent behind it. It's the heart. God looks at the heart. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. And so Jesus actually raised the bar. He said, it's not, it's not that the, the laws were wrong and evil. He said, even if you've looked at a woman, you've already committed adultery. But you've missed the whole intent of the law. It was that I was looking at the heart. I don't want your heart wicked and corrupt. So here they were. They had gotten into this trap of adding laws because they had taught that Laws eventually are going to save, follow all these laws, do these things, don't do these things, and you're going to be good enough. Now, the Apostle Paul comes along, and he teaches that faith is all that matters. And James, this is where some people get a little confused, James teaches that faith without works is what? So evangelical Baptists see these good works as a sign of sincere and grateful faith. Well, it's an expression of our, of our love and gratitude towards God, and so so we do good works. But the official stance of the Catholic Church and many Eastern Orthodox churches is that faith and good works are both necessary for salvation. Many Methodists, I didn't know this, but I was in, as I was studying this this week, many Methodists have roots that date back to holiness movements. And Methodists, as well as a lot of Pentecostal holiness groups, they go back to perfectionism also, and they see good works as conditional upon, quote, time and opportunity. In other words, good works are necessary unless there are obscure cases, and they make an exception for instances like the thief on the cross. He didn't have time or opportunity to do good works, so I guess they decide he gets to go to heaven. So what does Eric believe? Well, thanks for asking. Let's look at the Word of God, will you? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Perhaps this will bring some clarity on the matter. How many of you believe that the Word of God does not have any contradiction in it? And that it's all truth, right? Okay, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. Because this verse is pretty clear. And if you read this verse for what it says, then we've got to make the whole scripture in light of this verse make sense. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by what? You have been what? Through what? By grace you have been saved through faith. You're saved by what? Grace through what? Faith. Make sure you've memorized that right. By grace through faith. God's grace is the living water that you need. While faith is the conduit in which you can receive it. I've used this analogy before. Imagine, if you will, water throwing 
flowing through a hose. God being the spigot, the, the water supply. You're thirsty, you want to drink. Okay? Faith is that hose. It's that taking that hose and screwing it into the water tap and saying, God, I want to drink of you. The hose brings water to the place where you can benefit from it. And so grace is communicated through the vehicle of faith to the individual. His grace is available. It's there. It's open. He's offering it up. But you have to have faith in order to receive it. Well, why can't I just drink right from the spigot? Because without faith, it is what? Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Many are try, going to try, but sinners cannot get close enough to the spigot without first taking a drink of the cleansing water. You have to have faith. And it's that faith that's the latching point which helps you to receive His grace that has already been supplied. All right. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, that what? The salvation. Not of yourselves. In that, not of yourselves. All of this being saved by grace through faith, and is not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of what? So that no one may boast. Seems pretty clear to me. You are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God for you. You must receive it. It has nothing to do with works. And he specifically explains why it's not about works, so that you can't pat yourself on the back, look what I did. I earned it. In fact, doing works, believing that works is a means to salvation, actually takes away from the accomplishments of Christ Jesus. Because the way I look at it is I see Jesus did everything. It's all, we owe everything to Jesus. And... If you think that you've got to do something along with him, then that really leaves a little bit of room for taking some congratulations to yourself, isn't it? Do works save us? Well, in case you missed it, let me just read from the Amplified. Not because of works, not the fulfillment of law's demands. The Common English Bible says, it's not something that you did that you can be proud of. CJB says, you were not delivered by your own actions. The CEV says, it is not something that you've earned. It's not on the principle of works. It's, you are not saved by the things that you've done. It was not the result of your own efforts or works. It's not the result of actions. It's not of works. It is not given to you because you worked for it. I trust you get the point. Works do not save they have nothing to do with earning salvation. The Bible teaches that you are saved only by God's grace that's extended to you while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. He didn't die for the good ones. He didn't die because you earned favor with him. He died for you while you were hopeless and useless and worthless. You didn't deserve salvation. You didn't secure your salvation. You haven't kept your salvation. He already gave it to you. He's kept it. 
There was nothing good in you, and there's nothing in you that you can do to earn more of his love. You cannot get more saved than you already are now, positionally. If you hook up the hose and drink the water, you are and will be saved. But doesn't the Bible tell us to do good works? Yes, it sure does. It absolutely does. Good works are expected of everyone that calls himself a believer. Verse 10. Isn't that convenient that we've got this verse right next to... You don't even have to turn your page, do you? That's amazing. It's almost like these verses go together or something. I don't know. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When did he prepare them? Before what? Before you gave your life to him? Before he died on the cross? Before he was born? Before he created the earth? Before the foundations of the world? God is outside of time and he created, he destined you to do good deeds so that he would receive back glory. That's our purpose. You say, oh, well, aren't we created to worship God? Yes. It's part of why we're created. We're also created to do good works. We're also created to be with him. He created us, prepared beforehand for us to walk out these good works. So this is the reason that if works don't save us, this is the reason that we ought to continue to do them. Someone who asked the question, well, why should we do works then if it doesn't do anything for our salvation? I really don't like that question because to understand it fully is to presume upon God. It says, we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Listen, God designed the works. He planned the works. Sure, sometimes he might give you insight to why he has you doing the works. But we must be careful not to fall into the trap of trying to understand everything before we do it. I've got a child. Well, I've got four children. But there's one in particular that struggles in this department. Child, please do blank. Why? <laughs> Is that good? Is that good odds? <laughs> 25%? <laughs> But that doesn't make sense. And much like their father, they're very logical thinker, and they have to deduce everything. They have to figure out how everything works. It's a control thing. I like to understand things, and if I can't understand how something works or why I'm doing it, I'm going to have a really hard time doing it. But you know something? And, and I don't believe that the intentions of this particular child are really even malicious or evil. I don't think they're even disrespectful. But you know that even if the intentions aren't bad, that doesn't excuse the disobedience? Do you know that you can be respectfully disobedient? And we need to be careful of this when it comes to God's commands. How many times have you ever, been ki you ever kicked or bucked when God has asked you to do something? Just two of us? Three? Four? I'm not the only one that's ever done that, right? Eric, I want you to go over and ask that person 
if you could give him a hug. Why? Give him a $20 bill. I don't have any cash. Duh, God, I thought you knew everything. Oh, there's an ATM right there. Huh. Eric, I want you to go pray for that person. Ask them to lay down the crutches and try walking. Do what? Eric, I want you to go lay hands on that person and pray for that demon to leave. I want you to pick up that guy and give him a ride wherever he wants to go. I want you to call and check on so-and-so. Eric, I want you to see how you can help those two orphans, that homeless person. Why, God? Why? What's the point? Is that really you, God? All right, God, if this fleece is wet and all the ground is dry in the morning, then I'll know. Even though my intentions are good, even though I want to please God, my inaction characterizes my disobedience. See, the thing is, even though works cannot and do not save us, they are commanded. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. James wrote this. He said, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he, but he has no works? Can that faith save him. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And that's the very passage that many Catholics and holiness teachers take too far. We need to understand the context of James chapter 2. You see, there's a difference between being saved by faith and works and proving genuine faith by our works. There's a very thin line for some between the two, but this must be observed by all. It's so easy to fall into this trap of doing good works to try and prove ourselves to others. Oh, I'm a Christian. Watch what I do. Or, or even if your intentions are right, you say, okay, well, I am a believer, but I understand that I'm supposed to do good things so that other people can witness me. Yeah, there's a balance because Jesus says, let your light shine. Perhaps you fall into the subtlety of trying to do good works to please God. Well, I know that this is what God asks. And so I want to do good things and please him. While the intent may not be wrong, you have to understand that doing good things to please God is not the reason we're supposed to be doing them. We're saved solely on faith by grace through faith. So you can't earn favor with God by doing good works. Your favor, his grace, that's what favor is. It's grace. His grace has already been bestowed upon you fully. Now, we want God to be pleased with us. We want to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But we do the good works, the good deeds, because he asks us to as obedient vessels. I love that Caleb likes to please dad. I say something, he normally will hop right to it. He's a very obedient child, um, I think in a relative basis. No one is perfect, of course. He's very high in pleasing. For instance, last night, 
well, the last 36 hours or so, he's been struggling with a headache. Bad enough at times that he'll cry. And we've had conversation with him about, Caleb, don't let your headache get so bad before you come and ask for Tylenol. But he was asking for it fairly regularly. So we said, Caleb, are you, are you really pushing through or are you just asking for medicine? So he, he went so far to try and please us that he's in pain, crying in the corner, wanting to hide it from us because he's afraid to ask for Tylenol when he needs it. So we had a talk before bed. Caleb, do not let this get out of control. You're going to be miserable. If it's starting to hurt and you're not able to do anything, you're starting to feel really bad, come ask for medicine. If you wake up in the middle of the night and you need us, come get us. Okay, so I've, what time did he wake up? I come out on the couch this morning. I've been studying in the, my office, going over my notes. Caleb was sitting on the couch by himself crying. Caleb, what's wrong, buddy? He said, my head hurts. I said, why didn't you come get us? He said, what time have you been, you been awake? 4.40. He woke up at 4.40 and was afraid to come get us because he knew that I was tired and mommy had been up with Sarah, crying in pain. We, as children of God, I think are no different in a lot of ways, wanting to please God the Father. We want to do what's right. We want to make him proud. But listen, we need to understand something. Your salvation is not contingent on whether or not he's had proud moments of you. Your salvation is wholly and inclusively on the works of his son, Jesus Christ, that has already been paid for 2,000 years ago. Now, we do the works. Don't mistake what I was saying. We do the works because we love him and we want to be obedient to him. But we must not fall into the trap of trying to please him and earn more favor or grace because the grace has already been bestowed to us. If Caleb asked for Tylenol, it's not like I'm going to love him less, is it? It's not like I'm going to love him more if he pushes through and doesn't ask for Tylenol either. So it is with our relationship to the Father. What you do and what you ask for and how you respond to his word is not going to make him love you any less or more. God loves you full stop. You can't earn more of his love. You can't earn more of his favor. So each of us need to check our motives on this issue. Am I doing this for myself? Am I doing it for others? Or am I doing it for God? Am I doing it because his word says so and I want to be obedient to what he commands? Although we cannot be saved by our good works, after we are saved, we ought to do good works anyway. Just as a baby's going to grow after birth, so a believer ought to be growing. We ought to be getting off this milk. And if you're not growing, then there's something very wrong with you. Doctors are going to find you a very interesting case, aren't they? They're going to want to study you. So it is spiritually. People are going to study, why isn't this person more in love with Jesus now? Why isn't this person know more about God's word? Why isn't this person doing more good works? Why isn't this person more, talking about God everywhere they go at this point in their life? It's going to be very peculiar when you get before God and you've given a testimony of your life. He's sharing about all the things that you've done and you guys are having this great conversation and you recognize and look back and say, you know what? I don't know that there was much transition or change in my life. We, as spiritual beings, need to grow in the same way that we do physically. After salvation, we need to grow and look more like Jesus. When we grow, 
we will begin to do the works that he did. If you've been doing works for yourself or even for others, then you've been caught in dead works. Faith alone saves you. Rest securely in that. And as you begin to grow, do good works for our Father who is in heaven. This, my beloved, is infant milk. This is a baby teaching. This is a foundation. So if you're getting challenged by this, I want you to take a survey. And I say this in love. A survey of your own life and say, hmm, maybe I'm not as far along as I thought I am. Because this is the exact context of the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, you ought to be already past this. These next five things also. You ought to be so beyond them that I can teach you about Jesus the Christ. So if we're hung up here, if we're hung up on what good works are and what they look like, or faith in God, or repentance, or laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, then we need to, we need to evaluate our own walks and say, God, am I really growing? How can I grow? Help me to grow.